0: Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. A demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh, G in the power head innovate.
1: Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. Oh, G in the power here to innovate.
2: Ha. Welcome to the Oil and Gas Elevate Podcast. I'm joined by my my buddy, my partner, Eric Johnson. Good to see you, bud. Sean, I'm doing awesome. How are you doing? As always, man, you know, I'm living the dream. Today we're talking about engineering. Uh, A little offshore wind again, we're coming back into that area, drilling platforms, and of course the the cornerstone of this, which I'm really excited about. We talk about transition, we talk about evolution, but what does a true pivot for a business really look like?
3: Yeah, I know I'm excited about the conversation. And and you know, that's I think one of the things that's important to remember is that pivot happens at all levels. It's happening for the industry, it's happening at a corporate level, and it's also happening for individuals out there that are in the workforce.
2: Yeah, and it's, and it's not the easiest thing to do, but it is possible. And that's what we're going to talk to you today. We have Alberto Morandi, who's the general manager for Houston for Augusto MSC, which is an NOV company. He's going to talk to us about that and what they're doing in that regard. And then as the inside segment, we have Denny Splettstosser, who's the vice president of origination and investor relations at Renewable Energy System America's better known as RES. And so with that, I think we've got a pretty good setup for a conversation. Yeah, I'm excited about it. All right. So we'll take a minute here to, to hear from our sponsor, the, our friends over at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and we'll be right back. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise.
3: Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization.
2: So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects.
3: Alberto, Eric Johnson, we're excited that you're here today. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of the journey and the opportunity that you guys have been on. Obviously, Gusto MSC, NOV company, kind of this pioneer in offshore engineering and traditional gas space with jackups and mobile offshore units. But here we are today, a few years ago, you guys were looking around, you know, what is that opportunity? What were you guys seeing as a path
1: forward? Right. And when you mentioned pivot, is very important for companies and, and also workforce to pivot into this energy transition. You know, I'd like to highlight the fact that, you know, the oil and gas are really, you look at an energy dense source where you have resources that are, you know, local, physically localized. And, you know, the industry had has a history of extracting customized platforms to extract those resources. And, you know, it's a high risk, high reward industry with high return. And that allowed a lot of technology to be developed over the years, right? But as, you know, society demands this transition to renewable energy, renewable energy has a, a distinction, which is is really about space, right? You know, look at it, something that's intermittent, you need to have, you know, if you think of a wind farm, you need to have hundreds of units to capture that amount of energy. So you look at it, something that really requires, you know, this understanding of cost and space. And I think we realized some years ago that key to reducing cost of offshore wind and offshore wind is is, is really, you know, the energy transition component that's happening right now right wind and solar and in larger turbines are in very important part of taking less space and also reducing the cost of offshore wind you know and also larger turbines that are very higher you know high up and that requires installation vessels that can lift those heavy weights that you know that could be a foundation could be 2500 tons, you know, a turbine could be 12,000, 1,200 tons, and you're lifting 100, 150 meters. That places a challenge on these existing installation vessels. So, and if you are investing into building an installation vessel, you know, do you build it for the turbines that are out there today, or, you know, knowing that you're going to be operating this vessel for 20 years, do you aim for the turbines of the future, right? And the 12 megawatts are, let's say, the near future, but you know, the 50 megawatts are there and, and there might be a 20 megawatt turbine. So you have to face as an owner that challenge. And we walk with the owners in their path to, to what's the best solution. Also, if you look at the projects across USA, Europe and Southeast Asia, you know, for what's planned for 2023 to 2025, you, you can see we could have a shortage of vessels that can install these next generation turbines. Right. And, you know, I'm starting to see looking at even beyond those regions, the beginnings of a globalization of offshore wind where, you know, I, and I tell people that and they're surprised, but there are about 3,700 turbines under permitting in Brazil. When is going to, I cannot guarantee you that's five, 10 or 15 years, but they're definitely under permitting right now. And, you know, even people starting to look up into Africa and other places. So the need for the vessels is, is definitely there. In the U.S., we have another component, which is the Jones Act, as you're probably familiar, that you be able to, to be able to come into U.S. ports, you need to have a vessel that is built here, crewed here on majority by Americans. And that, you know, introduced a certain challenge because the cost of building here is different from the cost of building in Asia. I still have an open question, you know, does it move the needle? I know that it costs a lot more than you would cost in Asia, but if it, when you look at the final price of electricity, is this cost going to actually move the needle or not? You know, I haven't seen that answer very clearly. You know, of course, it, the capex is is a barrier to entrance. You know, you, you saw the, the price announced for the dominion vessel, and you also have so other challenges that you know we need to develop our port infrastructure and you know to be able to you know support those projects. This whole supply chain in the US is still emerging, and you know, beyond the shallow water fixed foundations that we'll see probably in the Northeast coast, there's also floating wind, right? Floating wind that is starting to happen globally. And I am always surprised with the pace of renewable energy developing now and in the last few years, things that I thought were going to take five to 10 to 20 years happening much faster. You know, I think what took the oil and gas industry a good century to develop we're going to have to develop a lot faster
2: so albert i want to ask a question in lieu of that so as you're transitioning as you all decided to pivot and take your expertise that you traditionally applied to oil and gas over to the renewable side through the wind and the platforms and things of that nature are you still is it a complete transition so you're are you doing that exclusively or are you still doing both and then
1: no i mean no. we're still supporting our oil and glass clients you know, the, you know of course the we have a very strong history with, with, with drilling contractors and they're not seeing much new builds. And as you're probably aware, there is still a lot of consolidation and retirement of rigs to come before there's any prospect of a new build. But you know, there are still drilling rigs needing support. We stay involved with the owner throughout the life of the unit. So we're still helping a lot of drilling contractors with their existing units. We participate in, in conversions and you know, offshore production projects. So, you know, we can see the start of a recovery in the oil and gas sector too. So that's not an exclusive. And beyond the offshore wind, you know, even on the renewable space, there are other things there I can see in the future like carbon capture and hydrogen that I think will be the next big things. Well, Alberto, you know, Elevate
3: is about ESG. We talk about environmental, social, and governance issues, and we try to elevate those issues. And I, I think this is actually an episode that really checks all the boxes in many ways, and your great background on, on why you guys have pivoted and kind of added this new revenue stream. Obviously, that all kind of fits within that e-bucket, right? We're we're helping the renewables. We're helping the wind side. We're pivoting our business into to working on that. But one of the things that Sean and I kind of opened the show about and talked a little bit about, I kind of put more in the S-bucket, right? Which is, it's your employees, it's your community, it's reskilling and repurposing some labor. We have so many talented people in the industry that are maybe those opportunities aren't there for them now but they actually have a skill set specifically within you know with, with what you guys yeah. do a skill set that actually translates perfectly into kind of building offshore systems for wind and so I just want to get your talk, thoughts about that how how it's impacting the employee base how how what you guys have done kind of in that in that employee area
1: yeah i mean he has in particular with the younger generations you know i interview people who say i want to work on this i even had an em- and a candidate who turned out an offer because she said, no, I can, I do not want to touch oil and gas. I just want to work on. <laughs> so that's a very interesting, it's very attractive to to the younger generations to work on offshore wind, you know, and I believe in general that the more seasoned oil and gas engineers will have a major part to play in this energy transition because, like, you know, doing things offshore is a different world, right? I think you see it people trying to step from working at port and nearshore level into doing offshore. And you realize it's very difficult. You know, I always remember when I was assisting oil companies and we had the hurricanes going through and you have this facility that turns fifteen million million a day and you cannot work because cable trays were damaged and you cannot get cable trays offshore because of everybody was trying to get something offshore. So when you're working offshore, you have to be very conscious that you need to have a the management system that is conducive to minimizing downtime and to improving, to actually optimizing safety. And, you know, so I think there's a lot from the oil and gas offshore workforce that will be vital to offshore wind. There are differences too. So there is, you know, when I say there's a skill transfer, doesn't mean copying things, of course, there's a lot to be (laughs) learned because also there is now a mature offshore wind industry too, with contractors who are very competent and very experienced in that area. And I like to think that there's going to be a feedback loop. So we're going to learn from the offshore wind back into the oil and gas. You know, we, you know, as I said, it's about space and having many units. So the offshore wind is a lot about industrialization, you know, design one, build many. And we need that back in the oil and gas industry. You know, the days of the, you know, hundred, maybe we're going to have back to $100. But the day of the highly customized units that cost, you know, a lot of money, I think those days are over too. We need to have this mentality of design one, build many, industrialize. And in both camps, you can see also the digitalization. I think we need to, that there are data being acquired in rigs and in turbines that we need to all learn how to use that data to best perform and again, reduce cost and improve safety. So I think I am a great believer that there's no barriers there, that there should be an interplay of culture and expertise.
2: So I'd love to to jump on that a little bit, Alberto. And Eric was talking about the S bucket. So the G bucket on this particular project seems very important too, because at some point internally, not only Gusto MSC, but maybe you can talk a little bit about the NOV side, but there had to be a a decision to say, we're going to go this route. And it isn't our our nature. It isn't our industry. It's not our flavor. There's going to be a... What was that? Can you give us some some idea of what that was like internally, from a governance and from a management standpoint of how that decision was made?
1: Well, I mean, I don't know if I can say much about NOV's management, you know. But you <laughs> yeah. noticed that yeah. early this year that there was a name change from National Oil Varco to NOV Inc. to kind of make sure to the, that the market sees that. You know, there's a funny story that there was an article in, in Texas Monthly about the Dominion vessel, and we start having investors from the ESG camp, you know, actually buying to the company because, oh, we didn't know you guys were there. And I think, you you know, and NOV carries this credibility of, you know, we've built machines that work, they're precise, you know, we, as we always say, we power the industry that powers the world, right? And having that dedication to the renewable space just carries a lot of credibility. You know, I'm fascinated. I participate in a lot of the energy transition efforts in NOV. And we talked to in client investors, you come from this oil and gas where you probably know you're talking to oil companies and drilling contractors and they tell you, I want this done this way. You know, tell me what your equipment do and what's your best price, right? And then you in the ASG space is people coming to you and say, okay, tell me what's your ideas. Tell me, you know, it's very open minded and because it's a it's something that's fast and and new, right? So, you know, there's money there to do things, there's interest in doing things, but maybe people don't have a clear idea, I want to do it this way, right? And it's, it's kind of a very interesting, different perspective on things.
3: I definitely think there, you know, kudos to NOV and to Gusto MSC management and kind of leadership to say, hey, because there is a lot of headwind within the industry, right? No no pun intended, there are a lot of headwinds within the industry. Yeah, Yeah. it it, 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 it
1: has to yeah.
3: Why would you even get into that space? But to see an opportunity, yes, for a business line, to see an opportunity to participate in the transition and evolution, in all honesty, see an opportunity to repurpose and reskill your your labor force and say, no, we, we care about these people. People, these people have brought us up in ONG and there's opportunities for them in this other space. I think it's definitely kudos to management. And, you know, Sean, you and I joke a little bit, and we've, we've heard this joke from others as well. It really shouldn't be ESG. It should be GES. And and the governance is the key. You're not really going to get to the E and the S unless you get the right leadership in place making making those decisions.
1: Yeah. And we had a nice kind of culture mesh because we would know, both Gustav Messi before coming to NOV and NOV have this culture of innovating by using proven technology I think that's very important you know that I say that you read a lot of LinkedIn engineering I joke that there's a lot of LinkedIn engineering there where people put a cartoon together and start announcing that we're going to have this built in 2023 and you look through it and say yeah I don't think you have done much there but (laughs) 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 on your environment too I think Yes, we are helping develop the environment, but we also, an, another important component is, you know, regardless of whether you install a wind turbine or you have a drilling rig, the future is going to be also reducing emissions, right? Looking at propo- different forms of propulsion, you know, battery, energy saving, you know, that is also something that's going to be common to whether you you own the oil and gas or, or, or wind space. That's your governance right there, right? Emissions and, and efficiency and,
3: and I think there's a partnership to be had there as well. we had we had that episode around Equinover four where they had the offshore oil and gas platforms being partially powered by wind farms, right? so there was a partnership pulling together to make those platforms more efficient with less emissions. I love the LinkedIn engineering. I wrote that down. I'm never going yeah. that. If if I ever see anybody come up with something, I'm like that sounds like some LinkedIn engineering right there. <laughs> but that's actually an interesting thing I wanna follow up on is as we talk about LinkedIn engineering. And and you you noted earlier that things are moving at a much more rapid pace than you expected. So I just pick your brain real quick. What do you see five years, ten years from now with respect to offshore wind? I, n- I know we've got smaller turbines now. Are you expecting to see some gigantic turbines down the road? Oh, more. Do you yes. expect to see anything in the Gulf of Mexico? My understanding is that the wind doesn't really blow like we want it to in the Gulf of Mexico as compared to the East Coast. But your thoughts on all of that?
1: Well, Gulf of Mexico, I've, I hear different different versions. You know, I hear, hear people saying too that it's not as bad as people make it, that there is a possibility there. I know the South Texas for sure has good enough winds. Yeah. And maybe we'll see more floating in the in the Gulf of Mexico. So that, you know, there there are advantages to Gulf of Mexico in terms of connecting to the grid, right? The, the challenges on in the California and in the West and East Coast is that you already have a congested grid. So there are even projects to develop an offshore electrical grid to be able to tie all those projects. In Texas, you wouldn't have that problem. Now, there is the question of the winds here, definitely not with the same quality as the winds in in the Northeast coast. And we also pay, you know, a lot less for electricity. But, you know, I do see in the wind space, you know, these larger turbines. I think there will be a, let's say, next generation of installation vessels yet to come, you know, because even... And you understand probably what I'm saying, that you know the jackup solution is favored because you basically have a almost a static structure, right? And the question there, when you install your foundations, you can tolerate some movement. But when you're lifting that, tur- you know I don't know if you've seen a movie, but you have people there actually bolting those turbine components and you need to be very static. And at some point, even a jackup is challenged to be a static, right? So you have more in that space. And floating wind, I think, will also be... And there's some interesting connections there of floating with hydrogen. You might have seen that too.
2: Yeah, the, the many rainbows of the hydrogen world. So I think what we learned yeah. from Alberto was that we can't trust everything we read or see on the internet is it, or on LinkedIn. Is that right?
3: Probably, at least the engineering stuff. <laughs> All right, amen to that.
2: Well, I think, this might be, I think this is a great place to bring in Danny and get some insight with him. And So Danny, I'd love to ask you a question around one topic we didn't really touch on this, but I think is really important and it reminded me you were talking to Eric about we're talking about Rob Erickson and Bo Can you give us an idea, this may be an odd way to start it, but I really want to kind of give people a perspective on the amount of money and the amount of opportunity that it's not just a pivot or something we need to do, but there's, and Alberto kind of mentioned it around the number of permits coming out of Brazil and things of that nature. I remember the impression Rob gave us was there's a, <laughs> the wind of the wind, the headwinds are coming, the winds of change are coming, I should right. say. But can you give us an idea of kind of what that looks like from a monetary and in, in somewhat of a logistic aspect? What's coming in the world of wind?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to be on. And yeah, opportunity is the right word. You know, a lot of times when we think about change, you know, I think a lot about the why, you know, why is this happening? And I think it's easy to point to the fact that we're adding a third leg to the energy stool. Not only does our energy need to be reliable, not only does our energy need to be inexpensive, but increasingly, you know, one of the whys that we point to in the energy transition is that we believe that it needs to be sustainable. But what I heard from Alberto is something that I'm actually hearing a lot on the S side from people of the growth. And you know, for folks who are entering their energy career, I don't care what type of energy it comes from, if they're looking at where they're going to grow their careers, more than often they're looking for the place, the area of the industry that has the most potential for growth. I am slightly above average when it comes to intelligence, but because I landed in the industry that was growing at the right time, you know, it's easy for me to, you know, rise that tide with the rest of the industry. And so I think what we see is growth sort of driving the why behind sort of sustaining this energy transition. So to put numbers behind it, I'm very US centric. So I work for a company that is a wind and solar renewable energy developer and construction contractor. We built about 10% of the wind farms onshore in the US. We've got a UK parent and we've helped out a lot on the advisement side for offshore, particularly out of the UK. So I'll come from a very US-centric view, but through 2050, and this doesn't even get us to meet to sort of the zero net zero goals, but we see about $2.4 trillion in investment, 2.4 terawatts worth of additional capacity coming online. So what the transition means is more generation and it's the electrification of everything. And so we see that as being just yeah. $2.4 trillion of investment through 2050 in generation alone. That doesn't count the transmission and distribution, the internet of things related in order to make a more dynamic and complex system work. So it's a challenging problem. People like challenging problems have been solving challenging problems in the oil and gas side for many centuries. And in this sort of new transition, we're unlocking new challenges on the electrification of things. And so people see growth they see challenge. And they do have see the meaning of adding that third leg to the, the energy stool. And that's really what's driving the why behind the energy transition.
3: Danny, some of those numbers are pretty staggering. And I'll be honest, I've been blessed enough in my career. I've been practicing law for about 20 years. Over a couple of those decades, I've, I've been blessed enough to do a lot of work for NOV. And one of the things as I was growing up as a baby lawyer that we always talked about and it came up in the public violence was backlog. And NOV would always talk about its backlog, billions and billions of dollars of drill ship packages and all kinds of things for traditional and gas. But I think what I heard from Alberto is that we're getting ready to have a large backlog of jack-up vessels for putting in wind farms and floaters and mooring systems and a lot of other things coming. And, And certainly it sounds like a ton of opportunity onshore as well. But with all of that in mind, I wanted to follow up on something you kind of brought up, this electrification of everything. And even Alberto mentioned this a little bit, kind of the grid infrastructure Kind of bottleneck, right? We can put up all the wind farms that we want, but we have definitely have some grid infrastructure problems on the ground. I, I saw something on, I don't know if it was on LinkedIn today, I saw it, but one of the states, a governor of one of the states, I don't remember what, said, hey, everybody conserve, conserve energy tonight. You know, the grid's under pressure from the heat. And then the joke was afterwards, but make sure to plug in your electric cars when you go to bed. <laughs> so it's kind of like this <laughs> huge, as we talk about electrification, and I'm a supporter of electrification, I've driven electric car, it's a blast, okay? But as we talk about that electrification, as we talk about adding another source of energy, whether that's wind and solar, whatever, what does the industry kind of see as the solution for the grid problem? Because we got to find a way to get all this power to our homes, into our businesses, into our cars.
4: Yeah. What's interesting in the renewable energy space is that that grid problem becomes a bit of a crux of you know, how much do we need to change? If we solve the grid problem, and what I mean by solve is increase investment in traditional linear infrastructure and distribution infrastructure that we have today, that's largely controlled by larger companies that own, you know, utilities that own electric transmission. If we do that and invest in transmission and distribution, the cost of change will be lower. And the what, how electricity looks, meaning that, you know, where we generate electricity can still be pretty far away from where we live and work. If we don't fix that problem, if we become As a society allergic to linear infrastructure growth, then what will happen is that quite frankly, the advancements in the technology on the solar side and on the battery storage side will break our current electricity market model fundamentally. And it has some knock-on effects about social justice. It has knock-on effects about shareholder returns. And so, and who are the winners and losers. So, from my perspective, If we are thinking about the way to make a transition as smooth as possible, solving that problem where we put, you know, we continue to enable siting for linear infrastructure, pipelines and power lines, and we encourage investment, both intrastate and interstate, that's going to be necessary in order to minimize the impacts, at least from the disruptive nature. what the energy transition looks like because if we do nothing the technology is going to get there the technology is already there it's just it's going to break the current system faster and it will end up costing in terms of dollars and cents society more
2: well i think that that sounds like you know this collective call to action if you will and i want to ask a little question or maybe reveal a little something about a conversation we had before we recorded we started recording and danny you know sometimes we you know, the people, oh, there's an oil and gas podcast and there's a guy from Wind on it and they're talking about renewables and, but we're not back to LinkedIn, right? According to LinkedIn or some areas of LinkedIn, we're supposed to be on the other side, which is really, mm-hmm. to your point, this. you know, I know where I am. I just think it's an absolutely ludicrous statement that it, to your point, it's this energy side. I don't really care where it comes from to an extent and then even if it, we have to work together. And so I want to ask a question in that or tell the audience a little bit about some of your recent experiences collaborating with oil and gas from your standpoint. Can you talk about that, that going forward and why that's critical for our electrification of everything and the, and the adoption of uh, new energy sources?
4: Yeah, so maybe two specific examples, one we talked about when we didn't, is that you know, on the investment side, people see, again, investors see this as the growth area as well. So oil majors are our clients for the long-term ownership energy companies are becoming, in the bigger sense, energy companies. They own both oil and gas and increasingly energy generation and increasingly renewable energy generation. So, And we see that in both the disclosures and as well the movement that we see, not from every and not from all, but from many of the majors that are playing. So that's one. The other one is that we're seeing it as well at sort of a more Local level is yesterday. I was on a panel hosted by the Colorado Business Roundtable, and it was hosted by Mike Summers, the CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. And it was, you know, energy in Colorado from a broad base. And so we were talking about, look, how does this energy transition and how does energy generation in the state of Colorado, you know, how does that move the needle in terms of rebounding from sort of COVID? And so we talked about the fact that, you know, abundant natural gas is a great balance as we continue to put in more intermittent renewables. And then we talk about, okay, as we think about things like electrifying the field and reducing carbon intensity in the field, what does that look like? And so what we all stood up there from, you know, thank you to the folks at Liberty Oil Field Services who hosted us, you know, it was about we need to continue to provide the jobs and we cannot lose you know, the two legs of the energy stool that we have about reliability and cost effectiveness. We cannot make energy poverty a thing where people have to choose between dinner and keeping the lights on or keeping the car filled more than they already have to. You know, we need to reduce that impact. But increasingly, we have to think about the social impacts and the sustainability impacts of what we choose and how we produce energy. And that's what we see happening. And it can happen through just reducing carbon intensity and the energy we already use.
2: Well, this always goes by way too fast, but I do want to end with one last question for each of you. And I'll start with you, Danny. I want to ask you, when you see a company like Gusto Gusto, MSC pivot like they have, what does that say to you? And what does what it, it stir in you as far as seeing a company do what they've done?
4: Earlier, we were talking about the S portion, and I'll talk about Gusto as well. It's that transition, and I see it a lot in people who are transitioning from you know, one side of the energy market to the other. And it's about leveraging strengths, understanding where weaknesses may be and admitting where weaknesses may be, and then working on those weaknesses, building networks and bolstering where we're weak. And then honestly, sort of a humility to know that, you know, I don't have all the answers today, but I am, I am damned, I am going to work my tail off to find the answers tomorrow. And that sort of strengths, building on strengths and you know, understanding your weaknesses and humility is, is critical to any transition of any type, including this one.
2: Yeah, I love that. And so, so, Alberto, I want to give you the last question, the last word before we wrap up. So, what is it like? Kind of give the audience an opportunity to understand what is this transition like for a company that's traditionally oil and gas and now bringing in wind? And should, you know, should we be scared? Is it the big, scary thing we think it is or this big thing?
1: You know, there are many things that Danny said yeah. that really resonate with me. I think the question of energy poverty, you know we need to remember that's about 800 million people in this planet who don't even have access to coal based grid electricity right and one thing that we learn is as people improve their standards of living they tend to have less kids and you know that's the only effective way to control population if we cannot get to a point where we stabilize the world population, all these efforts are really not going to go anywhere because you're just going to have more people consuming, right? So the question of poverty in general and energy poverty is very important. We came to a point where we no longer have you know, a first and a third world. We are in this together. Mm-hmm. We need to help each other and then elevate everybody. And I think also, another thing that would kind of resonates to me with Danny is this, and IOC is becoming energy companies. I think it was very painful in 2014 when OPEC opened the taps, and I think all the IOCs understood right there that they, they have no control over oil prices. the national oil companies that control oil price. And being in that position where you you can have, you know, the low-cost oil bioproductions together with the energy to new forms of energy can only strengthen those new energy companies. Not nothing to be feared, I think it's a necessary step. You know, so you're not as vulnerable to those ups and downs of oil. And I think that's something Danny mentioned in passing about storage. I think energy storage is another huge part of the resilience of grids and, you know, being able to tap into that. So I think, of course, if you're the guy who's been selling top drives your whole life, you might feel scared that, (laughs) hey, what I'm going to do is, you know, I'm not going to climb on a pole to fix a wind turbine. I still think, you know, as I keep talking about carbon capture, there's an industry to be built in putting carbon back into the reservoirs where we took it from in the first place and that's going to be just straight technology that oil and gas used to extract hydrocarbons we can plug them back in so I'm optimistic there's a place for everyone in this energy transition
4: I know that's the case I mean I had a cousin who did eight years in procurement in midstream and just recently made the move over and is now you know working and using the skills and skill sets and practices of you know of procurement to help make renewable energy company better at you know, procuring
1: steel and cable, and and solar panels
4: as well. So it
1: it's there. Yeah. We produce oil in deep water. That's cheaper than a bottle of water, right? So I think that tells you the skills are there.
2: <laughs> it's true. Well, guys, this was great. It's so much. Thankful, for, so thankful for your time,
1: Eric. Any last thoughts?
3: Amazing episode, and and I think the key word we heard at the very end from Alberto was optimism. And I think I think we should be infected with that, if anything. So excited about the future. I agree.
2: Thanks again, gentlemen, for joining us, and we will see y'all next week. Thank you for the
0: opportunity. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for July 2021. This month, we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're always interested in staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas, on July 29th. Our June happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the June one, we hope to see you there this month at our July happy hour. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts and network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Don't forget that it's on July 29th. Other than OGGN's events, we have two in-person and two online events. First up, we have our two in-person events. The first one being the Doug Permian and Eagle Ford Conference at the Fort Worth Convention Center from July 12th to July 14th. And the next in-person event is the SPE International Data Science Convention at the Norris Convention Center in Houston, Texas, on July 8th. Next, we have our two online events, the first being a Cognite webinar titled From Buzzwords to Boardrooms, What Energy Leaders Really Think About the Transition Towards True Sustainability, and that's on July 8th from 1130 to 1230. And lastly, we have the U.S. Africa Energy Forum, which is online on July 12th. If you have any questions about these events or any of our shows, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for July. I hope you guys have a great month and thanks for tuning in.
2: On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we're doing is to tell a friend about it. Ask them to listen and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week.
0: Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to
1: innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Ha!